Hello and welcome from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This podcast you're about to hear was recorded at our Kublup campus. So sit back, relax, and enjoy what God has to say to you. Okay, well, I wanted to start off today with a, a quick exercise. And I know you don't come to church to be asked to do things, but if you could just bear with me, and if we just all close our eyes for a moment... Take a deep breath into your lungs and let it out. And I just want you to try and imagine, just picture in your mind as best you can, what, it, what he would look like, Jesus would look like, if he was standing in front of you right now. What's the picture that comes to your mind? What's the image of Jesus that you have? Okay, you can open your eyes. It's, um, I was opening a card from my son Benji that he'd made during the week today, an Easter card, and uh, it was beautiful, and he'd drawn a picture of an Easter bunny down the bottom of the card, and his explanation for the bunny was, I didn't know what Jesus looked like, so I thought I'd draw a bunny. Um, <laughs> but the reason I got you to go through that exercise is to try and unpack a bit how we see Jesus, because I think for a lot of us, we see him one of two ways. We see him as the the image on the side there of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You know, the children's books type Jesus, where he's surrounded by sheep, he's surrounded by children maybe, and you know, he's just uh, smiling and warm and uh, present. The other image we might have is of the suffering Jesus, the Jesus on the cross, the Jesus looking the worst for wear, as you see up there. And that was the one that came to mind for me because I grew up in a Catholic primary school and we'd go to assembly each week. And in the assembly hall that we would congregate in, there was a statue up the back and it was quite a striking statue of Jesus half naked, Jesus with the nails pressed down in his head, looking beaten and bruised and bloodied and with the forlorn and defeated look on his face. And to this day, even, it's burned into my mind and my imagination some 20 odd, 25, (laughs) giving myself more years, 25 years on. It's not wrong to see Jesus in these ways, but it uh, is not quite the picture that we see later after the cross in the stories of Paul the Apostle and John. Paul the Apostle and John on separate occasions meet Jesus in person and he's glorious, he's brilliant, he's vibrant, he's powerful, so much so in fact that both of them get knocked to the ground, Paul's on a horse and ends up on the ground and John too gets struck down to the ground, Paul loses his sight for three days and John says he fell down, struck as dead. And so there's this contrast in this Jesus that we need to maintain for ourselves. And Michelangelo, the great artist, touched on this himself. He was gathered at a, um, an event with a lot of fellow artists of his day, and it came time for him to speak, and he made this impassioned speech. He said, why do you keep filling gallery after gallery with endless pictures on the one theme of Christ in weakness, Christ on the cross, and most of all, Christ hanging dead? Why do you concentrate 
on the passing episode as if it were the last work, as if the curtain dropped on him with disaster and defeat. That dreadful scene lasted but a few hours, but to the unending eternity, Christ is alive. The stone has been rolled away and he rules and reigns and triumphs. His point is not that the cross is irrelevant, but that it's incomplete without the resurrection. You can't have Jesus without the resurrection, without him being the Lord. See, without the resurrection, all we'd have is potentially a criminal who deserved to die, who may have done bad things, who may have offended his culture and got what he deserved. But because we have the resurrection, we know that he is the Lord, that he's been vindicated by God himself, that he rules and reigns supreme in all power and authority, even triumphing over the grave. 1 Corinthians 15 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Jesus alive changes everything. It changed the course of human history. It transformed 12 disciples who were defeated, who were broken and afraid and fearful, hiding away in their rooms, wondering what's next for us. We were with this guy before he died. What happens to us now? It transformed them into the most bold, courageous, sacrificial, willing to die themselves for the truth that Jesus Christ is alive. It took them from hiding to publicly declaring all across the civilized world, this Jesus is alive. We saw him ourselves. We touched the wounds in his hands and the nails in his feet. He is alive and we're willing even to lay our lives down for that fact. And in a few hundred years, Christianity goes from nothing at all to the state religion of the greatest civilization that ever lived the world, the Roman Empire. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Stats today say there's two billion people out there claiming to be Christians. Why? Because Jesus is alive. It's real. And it's because Jesus is alive that you and I have a hope in life and in death And we read about this in our passage for today, which comes from 1 Peter Peter 1, verses 3 to 9. The Apostle Peter, writing to churches and Christians scattered, says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, 
may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Beautiful words. And actually, in the original Greek, it's one giant sentence of thought after thought after thought. If it was uh, an English, or if you are an English teacher, then it would cause a lot of consternation because it just keeps going without punctuation. But at the heart of what Peter's trying to do and to say is that you have hope today. Not just a hope of wishful thinking or optimism or it would be nice if this happened. A sure and certain guarantee that this is the way, the truth and the life. The first reason he gives for this hope is that we've received a new life. In verse 3, Peter says, In God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in the Greek, that phrase, uh, given us new birth, is also he, God himself has begotten us, birthed us again, born us from above. And so it's this comparison, I guess, with our physical existence. We all are here, right here, right now, because of the union of our parents. Don't think about that too much. But, have, <laughs> but from the moment we were conceived, we received their DNA, or we received DNA. And this DNA is the genetic material we need to instruct our bodies how to form and how to grow and then how to reproduce for the next generation. And so Peter makes a similar claim about how it works with our spiritual life in Jesus. He says, here we have our human hearts, our human lives, and here we have the resurrected Jesus, and through the Holy Spirit, he unites us. We come into union together, and we have this new life together, a new spirit that endures forever, that is indestructible. And in the, through the Holy Spirit, we have, like the DNA, the instruction we need to form this Christian life, to grow into this Christian life, and then to bear fruit like we would in the physical. I've told uh, before in, this, uh, in a sermon the story of my uh, school excursion. I think possibly my first ever school excursion where I, I was in uh, pre-primary, so about five years of age, and they took us to the local abattoir down in the country. And uh, just my trauma as I walked into the giant warehouse with all the, uh, the dead cows hanging from the ceiling. In my mind, those, that warehouse stretched on for miles. The smell was awful. I had to be uh, counseled afterwards. <laughs> but I raised that only because during the week, I think my son's experience trumps it. Their school, he's year five now, they took this year five class off to, where would you think, not SciTech, not the museum. They took them on Wednesday to a cemetery. And he was, as the only part of the story he was willing to retell me was 
that he only got through it because he had a friend console him as they told them about all these many children who never made it beyond the age of two. And I just... Why am I telling that story? <laughs> I'm telling the story because it's a long-winded way of saying I was reminded of a story. It's really a joke, but it's not, a, not, a, not the greatest joke. But it, um, it talks about a father and his five-year-old son, and they were driving past a cemetery, and the son noticed as they were driving past this large pile of dirt that was uh, set beside the open hole, the empty grave, and he shouted, Look, Dad, one got out! <laughs> Why do I say that? Because that's what Peter is saying to us. Look, one got out. He was there. He was there. He went to hell and back, but now he got out. And not only did Jesus get out, but you and me did too, because we've been united with Christ. So when Jesus suffered the punishment that we bore, it was as though we ourselves were suffering that punishment. That's how God treated it. When he was hanging on the cross, we were hanging on the cross with him. But better still, when he raised from the grave, we did too. You have a new life if you're in Christ. You are risen from the dead. You have a spirit that will live forever in the glory of God. Hallelujah. Praise be to the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Peter says this, as the saying goes, where there's life, there's hope. This is the message that we proclaim today. The second reason that we have hope, Peter says, is because our future is secure. He said in verse 4, we've been born into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you. And I just love the way Peter writes because, again, he's using physical language and circumstances to describe a spiritual reality. So we as parents often, as long as relationship is good, we gift our inheritance, everything, we set it aside for our human children, don't we? When we pass away, we've made sure we've got something to give back to them, hopefully more than our debt. In my, my children's case, they might be lucky, but <laughs> hopefully not. God is good, so he'll give them something. <laughs> but the point of it is this, that Jesus has guaranteed us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. That means it doesn't diminish in value over time like even a human inheritance will. It means it doesn't rust or wear out or tear up or like property does. It means it never can be stolen or taken away from us because it's given and set aside, kept secure in heaven for you and for me. And it's important that we hold on to this as Christians every day of our lives, that there's a better future awaiting me because hope for the future determines how we act now. It's how we live now. This is what all the research says, the secular research, would you believe, supports today. Hope has been proven to be a powerful force in managing stress, anxiety, 
coping with adversity, increasing well-being and happiness. All the, when we have hope, it keeps us for the future. And so Tim Keller says this, you and I are unavoidably and irreducibly hope-based creatures. We're controlled not by how we live now, but what we think will happen later. Christian hope has to do with the ultimate future, not the immediate. As much as we might like to think, it's about the ultimate future, not the immediate. John Maxwell says it a slightly different way, where there's no hope in the future, there's no power in the present. And we're seeing this in the world today. There's some terrible stats that I came across recently that talk about the plight of despair among our younger generations. Statistics say that now one in five children have mental health issues. There's been an increase of 37% in teenage depression. This one I hate most. There's been a 200 increase in suicide rates amongst children aged 10 to 14. 10 to 14, 200% increase. The Kids Helpline in Australia recently reported that there's been an 80% increase for them in children aged between five and nine calling their helpline for counselling advice. And it may not be explained completely by this, but I have no doubt it's because when they look to their future, whether they're conscious of it or not, they don't see anything worth living for. They've never heard it, they've never experienced it, and they have no hope. But we do. <laughs> we do. Because Jesus is alive and God has made our future secure. But may we take it as a warning. Let's look for opportunities to share this, to pass it down to our children and our children's children and our great-grandchildren because they're increasingly growing up in a hopeless world. Third reason Peter says we have hope is in verse 5. says we're being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The word shielded there in the Greek is, uh, is the idea of protective custody or of being protected, being guarded, being surrounded by uh, protection. And it was used to describe situations in ancient times where really important people, really wealthy people, would travel to place to, from place to place and be surrounded by soldiers, guarding them, making sure that no enemy could come and kidnap them or rob them or even kill them. And the the implication of these verses is that, yes, we have an enemy too. And yes, we will face fierce battles in this life. Battles that challenge our faith. That question whether God is really true to his word. Whether he's really there at all. We'll face people who make our lives difficult. Who just seem to... We seem to have a target on our backs in their eyes. It's their mission to make our lives miserable. We've got a society that's starting to head down that track. But God's power, that word dunamis, power, 
is the same word where we get the English word dynamite. It's explosive. God's explosive power shields us, surrounds us, consumes us and makes sure that nothing can keep us from our final destination in him. Fourth reason Peter gives that we have hope is because in Jesus, every trial is turned into a triumph. Verses six and seven says, we may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, but these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's again this physical image of fire being used to burn gold. And what it does when it melts the gold down, it doesn't destroy the gold. What it does is eke out all the impurities, the dross that gets taken away and all that's left is something beautiful. And so even though Peter's saying, you will go through trials, you will suffer hardships, none of them are wasted in God. Each of them are always used for his good. And whether we see it in this life or not, we will see it in the next. It will end and result Jesus says the consequence of trial and challenge when you're with him is praise, glory, and honor. And most of the commentators say there that the praise, honor, and glory is not just to Jesus, but to you as the good and faithful servant. That with all the hosts of heaven, you'll be welcomed in and championed saying, well done, you did it. And you did it with Jesus. Lastly, We have hope in this life and the next because we experience now in Jesus salvation, love, and joy. Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Our life with Jesus is a bit like the way the wind works. You know, we can't see the wind with our eyes, but we feel its effects and we experience its movement in the world. And so it is with Jesus. We don't physically see him now, but we've experienced his love, his grace, his joy in us and through us. And it spills out and affects the world around us. Heard a beautiful testimony uh, just last week uh, about uh, this testimony came from a mother of two young boys and these two young boys uh, were really becoming a trial and a challenge for her. She was struggling immensely with raising them. Uh, She had to discipline and remove them from their devices. But at the start of this year, she entered them into a Christian school. And a few weeks into the school, Uh, term, the kids, the boys came home and asked their mum, mum, can we please put some worship music on? And this woman had no idea what worship music was, but she let them type it into YouTube and the boys put on this Christian music and played it and kept playing it. The mum was testifying uh, a few weeks on just how incredibly grateful she was that these kids had been enrolled in a Christian school because as they were surrounded by the message of Christ, 
And as they heard these hope-filled words of Christian music, their behaviour and their attitudes had radically changed. She could see it at work in their lives. That can only happen because Jesus is alive. I've shared a, a story before uh, and got a progress update now and that Ella, my daughter, uh, she's 12, she's been journeying with a friend of hers, uh, walking alongside her. She shared music with her a few months ago, Christian music that this friend came to love. Uh, she, Ella had just been open about her faith with this friend and over time this friend got to the place where she, she lives in an atheist home, I should say. She got to the place where she... Uh, now believes there is a God and she's asked Ella, Ella, will you run a Bible study with me? And so every week on a Sunday after church, Ella will phone this friend and they're just reading through the Gospel of Mark together and just talking about what they're reading. And this girl is doing it in secret in her room because her parents don't approve. But this can only happen because Jesus is alive. And when these kids who've never heard the gospel, who've never even heard G the name of Jesus except as a curse word, but when they grasp something of the truth, that he's alive, that he's real, that he can transform you, that there's a God and a purpose and a meaning outside of, li outside of life and inside of life that can transform your future forever, they want it, they love it, they crave it, and they rejoice as it makes contact with their lives? Is it making contact with our lives still today? Or have we... Are we still burning brightly with the hope of Jesus in our hearts? Or has it grown cold? Have we started to take it for granted? Do we need to repent and come back to... Jesus is alive today, right here, right now, in me, in you. If you have accepted Jesus as Lord, these things are your reality. They're your truth that you must continuously come back to and cling to regardless of what you face in life. A story uh, about a guy who lived in 1950s, he was a beloved pastor in London of a, of a huge church, about 2,500 people, well-known, well-respected, uh, preached a good sermon, had a large congregation. But in the 1950s, he started to experience some health concerns and became diagnosed with a disease that caused progressive muscular atrophy. His name was William Sankster. On Easter, sorry, over time, Sankster's voice completely began to eke out of his uh, body. He couldn't speak anymore and his legs became completely immovable and useless. On Easter morning, just a few weeks before his death, he took a pen and shakily wrote his daughter a letter. And in this letter, this is what he said. So this man extremely wasting away in front of his own eyes, basically. He says... In this letter, it is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, he is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. 
It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, he is risen, but it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. This morning, the question I want to leave you with is, does your heart rejoice and shout, he is risen? When you got up today, as you go out from here today, as you wake up tomorrow and the next day, does your heart rejoice he is risen? This isn't just an Easter Sunday message. This is an everyday message. Maybe your heart is more like these prisoners in this story that I'll close with. It's a story from World War II and there was a point in the war early on where the US Army was forced to retreat from the Philippines and some of their soldiers got left behind and became prisoners of the Japanese. For the next three years, they suffered through just deplorable hellish conditions. In fact, so bad they called themselves ghosts because they saw themselves as souls unseen by their nation. In early 1945, they finally gave up all hope of surviving because they heard the news that as the US Army was advancing now, the Japanese was going around to each camp and executing everyone. They lost all hope. Short time later, though, there was a miracle that happened. 120 US Army soldiers and 200 Filipino guerrillas outflanked 8,000 Japanese soldiers and actually rescued these prisoners. Alvy Robbins was one of the rescuers and he described how he found a prisoner muttering in a darkened corner of his barracks, tears streaming down his face. He said to Alvy, I thought we'd been forgotten. Alvy responded, no, you're not forgotten. We've come for you. Those were, the those were the words that started the new life of this prisoner. And this Easter, Jesus' resurrection is God's daring rescue, his emphatic declaration that he has a new life for you and for me. And Jesus comes as Alvi did and says, no, you're not forgotten. I have come for you. I pray that as we sit and meditate on those words, that hope springs fresh, springs eternal. Let's pray. The moment we're going to close in worship. But all week I've just had the words of the song that keep coming back to me that hopefully are for you today. It's the song that says, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. I don't want any single person in this room to leave today without being able to sing those words. Well, we're not going to sing it, but <laughs> to be able to say those words. At least in some way to be true for you. That's the question. Do you have hope? Do you know that Jesus is alive?
Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come this morning and just fill this room and flood every heart and mind. We thank you that you glorify your Son to us and through us. Would you visit each heart now and pour out new hope, fresh hope, fresh faith, fresh ability to see your effects in our lives, to experience the love and joy and saving grace that you give so freely. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. Our prayer is that what was said today inspires you and strengthens you in your faith. If you would like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, you can contact the team during office hours on the number you can find on our website at mounties.org.au. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to having your company again soon. God bless.